Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the founding members and legendary frontman for the OJs, Eddie Levert. With hits like Love Train, I Love Music, For the Love of Money, and Backstabbers, the OJs are one of the biggest R&B vocal groups of all time. Working with our previous podcast guests, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, the songs the OJs recorded while signed to Philly International are still heard today all over the world. The OJs have racked up a phenomenal 10 number one Billboard R&B hits, and in 2005 were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In addition to all that, Eddie's sons Gerald and Sean both went on to have multiple hits in their own right, both as solo acts and as members of the group Levert. Eddie joined us via Zoom in April of 2022 from his home in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My name is Pete Ganbarg. I'm the head of A&R at Atlantic Records, and I am absolutely thrilled to be welcoming today a living legend from his home in Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome, Eddie Levert. Hi, Eddie. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great, man. I am so thrilled to speak to you and so happy that you're joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, I hope so, Pete, because it's early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hence the sunglasses. I, I get it. Late night. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You got it. There you go. You, you're looking good, Eddie. All good. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, but we do appreciate you joining us. Um, I like you. So I like that. Why I had the <laughs> So I'd love to kick it off back in the beginning. You know, it's funny when you have certain assumptions before you start doing a little homework. I always associated you with Canton, Ohio. I didn't realize that you were actually born in Alabama and you moved to Ohio when you were six. Any early memories of growing up in Alabama? Oh, yeah, but they're all terrible. (laughs) (laughs) The best part of that was, you know, I was was living with my grandmother. She was a sort of very stern person and uh, she helped me to be the let's say the country boy that I am why did the family move to to Canton Ohio because my my mom and dad had separated and my dad was now living in Canton so we were me and my brothers went to stay with him got it and when did you start discovering music very early very early, man, I I was writing songs because, you know, 12, 12 years old, 13, 
even at seven, I think I was writing songs. What do you remember listening to back then? What was the music that you remember hearing in the house and out in, out in the world with your friends? Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, you know, because at that time, that's mainly what radio was right. doing. You know, Dean Martin, the, the Rosemary Clooney. Very much the pop music of the day. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked about writing songs when you were really young. I read that you wrote a song when you were 12 years old um, yeah. that was part of a contest for Kellogg's Cornflakes cereal, and they were looking for yeah. a jingle. You wrote <laughs> that jingle and you won. You won 25 bucks. Yes. Yeah. $25. Yep. They kept the jingle, and <laughs> I got nothing after that. <laughs> not even a free box of cornflakes that's right I've been, I've been playing for cornflakes ever since so after winning that contest I heard that you decided hey I, I like this songwriting thing I like this music thing and then when you got a little older and you were in high school you formed your first group right yeah yeah we call ourselves the Emeralds you know, and it was just five guys, five completely different guys, nowhere near the OJs. You know what I'm saying? But five completely uh, unknown guys running around the neighborhood thinking we could sing. And what songs were you singing? Were you singing those Perry Como, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra songs? Or were you singing other songs? We were really singing the stuff that we would hear down through Nashville. Mm -hmm. The stuff like... The little Anthony Imperials, mm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The Flamingos, mm -hmm. James Brown, right. when he was James Brown and the Flames. Yep. You know, those kind of things. That's what we were doing. Got it. So you said the first group was called the Emblems. And then there was a group called the Triumphs, right? So did the Emblems become the Triumphs or was that a different group? No, that was, that was really the Triumphs turned into the OJs. Well, before that, the Triumphs turned into the mascots, right? We don't want to skip any steps. No, well, okay. okay. You want to keep me. You want to keep me. I'll keep yes. you honest, Eddie. And yes, indeed, Pete. Yes, that's who they did. We went from the Triumphs to the mascot to the OJs. Right. And the interesting tidbit, the, the reason I bring up the mascots is because, you know, I'm fascinated by stories of the larger-than-life record men of the 50s and the 60s. And Sid Nathan, you know, in Cincinnati at King Records, yes, speaking of James absolutely. Brown, is one of them. He's one of the people that gave us that terrible name. The mascot. Right, exactly. And you guys <laughs> you guys released two singles on King, and then a couple of years later you changed your name from the mascots to the OJs. And tell everybody where that name change came from, Eddie. That came because of Eddie OJ, who was a DJ in Cleveland. And he started playing our our music. But at that time it was a conflict of interest for him to have a group and still be on the radio. So he made his wife, our manager. Got it. And, he, and we couldn't come up with a name for that first record. He said, let's call yourself the OJ. <laughs> that's what we did. And what did you think about naming yourself after a DJ on the radio? Well, at that time, I thought, look, he said, I have a lot of friends. So that means that they're going to play his buddies are going to play our record. Right. One of his buddies I read was the very influential DJ Frankie Crocker. Yes, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But Pete, it still didn't guarantee that you were going to be a success. Right, of course. It always came down to the music. Right. And I also, you know, found it very interesting that once you renamed the group the OJs, you guys recorded between 1963 and 1966, you recorded for a lot of different labels. You recorded for Bell Records, you recorded for Minute Records, you recorded for Neptune Records, Saru Records, Little Star Records. What do you remember about that? That's a lot of record companies. Some of those were like the Minute stuff that was part of uh, Liberty at one time or other, and that was way before. Now, then when you get to the Saru and that kind of stuff, that was when we were trying to establish our own production right. company. Right, right. You it. know, and, and, you know, found out that that was another hard experience. Yeah, no, I'm sure. It was all learning because, you know, it's not like somebody gives you a textbook and says, okay, this, is, right. this is what you got to expect. Especially right. in those early days of the independent R&B labels, you know, some are going to be more honorable and professional than, than some of the others. Your biggest record before signing to Philly International, which we'll get to, was I'll Be Sweeter Tomorrow Than I Was Today, which was released on Bell in 1967. It was a top 10 hit. I got news. Remember hearing your songs on the radio for the first time? I got over that real quick, Pete. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the very first time I heard my record on the radio, we were with the King Records. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, and I had this awful thought in my head that when you heard your record on the radio, you were selling millions of records and you were going to be rich. Right. <laughs> well, you can understand that because when you hear your song on the radio, you assume everybody else is hearing the song on the radio. And so this record, everyone's going to hear it. And fame and fortune and riches, they're all right around yeah. the bend, right? Yeah, yeah, no. It was a long bend. <laughs> so let's talk about the group back then back then you know with these records that we're talking about the king releases and the bell releases the ojs were a five-piece group at that point right and it wasn't until later that a couple of the original guys who joined you departed leaving the group as the trio with the three original members you william and Walter becoming the trio of the OJs that most people remember from the early 70s. Yes, yes, yes. You know, life gets involved in this thing yep. here. And when life gets involved, life can throw you body shots that some people can't recover. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of guys got body shots that they couldn't recover from right. and left us with three guys. And did it feel different to you? as one of the founders of the group to be on stage with two other guys versus four other guys, or was it all just the same? 
know what we found out with the loss of a couple of guys. We found out the nucleus of the group was those three guys. Right. Because with Walter and William, there was nothing we couldn't do. Right. And Walter is still one of your groupmates today, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the OJs forming the first iteration of the OJs in 1958, we're now recording this in 2022. We're just about 65 years of OJs. That's incredible. Wow, man. Well, you know, I've never counted them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's interesting to me is that one of the labels that we talked about that the OJs recorded some of their early records for was Neptune Records. And Neptune was an early label that was where you first encountered Leon Huff, who co-owned the label, and his producing and writing partner, Kenny Gamble. Do you remember meeting those guys for the first time? Yeah, yeah. We met them in the, in New York. The Apollo introduced by the Intruders, who at that time had a number one record called Cowboys to Girls. Right song. And, and they introduced us to Gamble Up, and they later came into Cleveland, into Ohio, mm-hmm. and saw us perform at a club in Akron. And they wanted to do a deal. The bad part of that deal was that we were just getting started with one another. And Leonard Chess passed away. Right. And the deal sort of went in the tank and everybody grabbed their marbles right. and ran home. Right. right. So for those who don't know, Neptune, which was the label co-owned by Leon Huff, was affiliated with Chess Records. And Chess yeah. changed ownership After Leonard Chess's passing in 1969, Neptune ended up disbanding, and two existing Neptune acts, the Three Degrees and the OJs, were assigned to Gamble and Huff's new label venture, Philly International. Yes. And Philly International allied themselves, you know, moving on from Chess Records, which was an independent label, they allied themselves with Columbia Records, which was a major label, you know, run by the time, famously by Clive Davis, who realized that he needed guys who could help Columbia succeed in the area of R&B and soul music, which they weren't at the time. Yeah, absolutely. He he came along and took gambling off under his wings and together those two entities were able to make something that was new as far as music is concerned out of philadelphia right and you knew that with columbia and the muscle that columbia as a major label had that when you guys as the ojs delivered the right record that those guys were going to go out and they were going to get it. And I'm not sure if you realized that it was going to be the very first record that you put out for Philly International that was going to do it. But the first record that you released was Backstabbers in, in 72, written by McFadden and Whitehead with Leon, produced by Kenny and Leon. What they do
What do you remember about hearing that song presented to you guys for the first time? That song was presented in Kenny's office because that's where we would go to rehearse the music we were going to record. In Philly? Yeah. And hearing the song, it was like, well, okay, I like the message. Let's do it. So we like the message, and so we're going to do it. And Leon, playing it for you, is like listening to an orchestra because he's playing the piano, but he's doing everything that needs to be done in the music on his keyboard. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. Okay. We go in the studio from beginning, the music, making the music, when they're putting the track together, on point, great sound. Okay, now when we go in and we put the background on it, it goes to another level. Mm-hmm. Then when once we put the leads on it, it goes to another level. Now the next time I hear it, the next time I hear it, we're in Wyoming and it comes on the radio. Now I know I've heard this music before. The strings. And I'm talking about where have I heard this before? That's the OJs in the middle of Wyoming. Wow. So you know now that I got a record. Right. Because now the muscle had put the record. Right. Where you never heard your right ne- Neptune Records was probably not getting your music played in Wyoming. That's right. <laughs> that was the first time that you heard the finished recording of Backstabbers. Yes. Wow. How did it sound? Incredible. Because <laughs> I'm sitting there talking about where have I heard this before? You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't hear the arrangement. All I heard was the rhythm section, our vocals, and that was it. We left going to California. Amazing. Um, you know, that song came out in 72, so it's 50 years old now, and it still sounds as urgent and as, you know, timely and as relevant as it did back then. You know, it was such a big hit. Number one, your first number one on the R&B charts, and number three on the pop chart, on the Hot 100. So did it feel like you guys were just taking off on a rocket ship at that point with, you know, the no, records until, becoming not, big? It didn't, it didn't feel that way. Not until love train. Well, Love Train came shortly after that, 992 Arguments, a big R&B hit in between. But Love Train is arguably, you know, one of the OJ's biggest hits, number one R&B, number one Hot 100. You know, it's such an iconic record. It was obviously inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame as a song in 2006. It's a song that has stood the test of time, much like Backstabbers, in terms of being relevant today, but being relevant today in a whole new context of the positivity and and the joy and the aspiration for unity and world peace. Talk about Love Train. Love Train was a five-minute song. Five minutes. 
You know, they cut the track, but they had no lyric. So we were in the studio putting down uh, the background vocals and all that stuff for uh, the backstabbers, the You're My Sunshine. We're doing all of this. And so now we get to this track, Love Train. All we got is a sing-along. So Kenny starts writing right there in the studio. So in about five minutes later, we had all the lyrics. And we went in, cut this song, and it was unbelievable what happened with that song. So a song that has become one of the most famous songs of all time, you're saying that the backing track was cut, there were no lyrics, and Kenny Gamble wrote those lyrics to the iconic Love Train in five minutes. Yes. Nothing changed between what he did then and what we know now. Nothing. Wow. So the the lyric of Love Train, you know, talking about, you know, making a call for unity and world peace and actually calling out countries by name, England, Russia, China, Egypt, Israel, Africa. Do you think that he knew what he wanted to say before those five minutes came or it just came out naturally? I think he knew, and I think, you know, his his religious background and his search and his search for God mm-hmm. led him to those lyrics. Right. Because see, if you listen to those lyrics, nothing has changed. Mm. It's still those same countries, England, you name it, Africa, you name it, which the Russia, China, it's still those countries that are in the news today. Right. But the lyric, you know, it's a message of love. If you miss it, I feel sorry for you. You know, it's it's aspirational. And I'm sure that 50 years later, when you and the guys are performing this song, the smiles and the joy that you see from the people dancing at your shows, you know, it's all love. It's love train really, you know, realizing itself. But P is still a cry in the wilderness. No matter how you try to cover it, it's still a cry in the wilderness. It's still another, just a, a voice in the wilderness screaming, this is what we need. Why aren't we doing it? Yeah, but if you can change one person, and they can change one person, then hopefully... Not enough, Pete. Never enough. Never enough. Never enough. Not enough. You got to change the world. One person, yeah, well, it, every, everybody says that. Well, if you can change one person, it's not enough. Mm. But you guys are still out there, and you're still performing that song. Because it's still the cry in the wilderness. Right. So, you know, I mean, definitely something to ponder. I mean, when I listen to that song, just speaking for myself, it always puts a smile on my face. Not only because of the lyric, but because of the production itself. Talk about MFSB as the backing band for, for the Philly International Records. Great, great musicians. Great, spontaneous musicians. Great, creative musicians. When they came to the studio, they came to play. They came to create. They came to give the record their touch. Like I tell people all the time that when you have so many different touches on your music, it becomes universal. Mm. When you only have one person touching the music, it becomes one dimensional. Mm-hmm. You have guitar and a guitar player like Norman Harris or a bass player like Baker, you know what I'm saying? Mm. A drummer like Earl Young, 
they're all creating together. And when they all come together in one, one uh, effort, and it becomes a complete thing, uh. it's like magic. Leon Huff, great piano player. Kenny Campbell, great melody, great lyrics. That's, that's his forte. Without the two, it's not a complete thing. Right. Words yeah. and music. But yep. each person must know the part they play. Right. Right. And not try to overstep that. That's what happens with a lot of producers and stuff. Right. When you have two or more, one wants to step into the other's arena. Right. And becomes trouble. Right. So the MFSB guys, were they all local to Philly? Yes. So it was, it was almost like Kenny and Leon having spent time in Detroit and seeing what Motown was doing with the Funk Brothers. They were like, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it ourselves for no, Philly. No, I don't think they were really copying that because remember they had a band, yep. Kenny Campbell and the Romeos. Yeah, of course. That they went around. And all of those guys were the guys that started out playing at Philly International. Got it. It was it was organic. It was seamless. It just happened. It's almost like Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. Right. They play. Right. They do it together, and now we're able to bring our feelings together and put them on records. Have you been able to see that show that's in Vegas? Uh no. My kids went, but they swear that they're yeah. They put on a show. I don't have to see them. Right. I know it's there. <laughs> I don't think they'd be doing what they're doing if not for you guys doing what you're doing. So, you know, it's it's kind of the gift that keeps giving and, and pays forward. We're talking about Kenny and, and Leon Gamble and Huff. What was the creative process like? Was it always similar to what you said with Love Train where you had the track and then the lyric came on the spot? Or were they presenting songs to you before you went in and cut? And if you didn't like a song, what was the process there? Were you able to say, nah, that's not for us? You know what I'm saying? When you find some guys that are so on point on a regular basis, you know, it's hard to say, well, to them, I don't like this. You know what I'm saying? When you've seen them transform uh, what you thought was a turkey into uh, a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's hard to uh, deny them. Yeah, but you, you refuse some things that you don't really like. Some of the songs are songs that are, you know, automatic. You feel them already. And if they weren't automatic, you gave Kenny and Leon the benefit of the doubt and said, let's try Absolutely. this out, right? Absolutely, Pete. So moving on, I mean, just the amount of iconic smashes that the OJs had, 1974, talk about MFSB, you know, and that iconic Anthony Jackson bass line at the beginning of For the Love of Money. about that that was all they had that was it that anthony came in and played this baseline and that was it that's all they had 
Leon, him along with Kenny Gamble, came along and took that bass line and made it a song. And, you know, they stayed with the blues thing on it, and they made a song out of it. And the lyric was unbelievable. Once again, the uh, lyrical proneness of Kenny Gamble is shown in that lyric. Was that written on the spot as well? That was written, no. You know, some of the things, you know, we, we'd go to Philly and we would spend maybe six months. And we'd know those songs. By the time we got in the studio, we knew those songs like from A to Z, like uh, the back of our hand. Uh-huh. So when we got before the mic, it was just, hey, I, this is my song. I'm going to sing right. it. Got it. You knew the song so well that it was easy to do. And the iconic part of For the Love of Money, the money, 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 was that something that was written out for you guys, or did you kind of come he, up with no, it vamp on the spot? had that idea, but what made that idea was Joe Tarsier, right? which is the engineer. Right. He turned the tape backwards, put a delay on it, and played it for Kenny. What do you think about this? And Kenny loved it. Mm. See, that was not only the musicians and Kenny Campbell. It was also Joe Tarsia. Right. He was good, too. Right. For those who don't know the name, Joe Tarsia, he was famously an engineer at Sigma Sound in Philly. And what Eddie's talking about is he had just installed an even-tied phaser, which was new technology in the control room. And when Anthony Jackson started playing, Joe tried recording the bass with a wah-wah pedal through the phaser. And Kenny loved what he had done. And then they just ran with it. Yeah, absolutely. And so For the Love of Money was nominated at the 1975 Grammys for Best R&B Vocal Performance. And ultimately, even though you didn't win that award, the Grammys made up for that snub 40 years later. And For the Love of Money was the second OJ song inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. Because we should have won the first time. should have. (laughs) <laughs> N- nothing nothing against Shaka Khan and, and tell me something good, but, you know. <laughs> nothing, all good. I mean, what, in the first time. <laughs> what's remarkable about the OJ's catalog is some of the most iconic songs weren't even singles. You know, when you think about a song like Now That We Found Love, which was never really an official single for the OJ's, but, you know, there's a generation of people who know it from Third World. There's another generation of people who know it from Heavy D. You remember that song? Yeah, because it sticks in my crowd still that Third World would come along and get a gold record for that record. And I thought our version was the top of nobody could do this any better than us. Right. But they came along and got a gold record from it. Mm. I, I, I still think it's one of the greatest songs that we've ever sang. Yeah, now that we found love, what are we going to do with it? I mean, it's yeah. 
Kenny and Leon were really onto something in terms of writing songs that made you think. Yeah, absolutely. But once again, I'm telling you, me and Kenny, we were studying to be Jehovah's Witnesses Mm -hmm. together. So whenever he would come up with an idea, we would toss it around and, and not saying, but, you know, just conversation between the two of us. And he'd know what I was feeling. Right. And then he'd write the song. Right. Continuing the, the string of successes, Give the People What They Want, 1975, with another iconic bass line. That was a number one R&B smash. <laughs> And then I Love Music, also in 75. What's so interesting, if you listen to the intro of I Love Music now, it's all bongos. You know, you you wouldn't think that, um, (laughs) you know, that's what it was because it wasn't, that didn't really happen at the time. remember that yeah absolutely i thought it was fantastic idea you know what i'm saying because it just showed the wide range that our music was covering you know what i'm saying it wasn't just we're gonna stay strictly r&b no we can take some of this put this in here and make it r&b also yeah some great guitar parts in that who's playing guitar on i love music do you remember uh, Norman Harris. Yeah. And uh, was it Bobby Eli? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then moving ahead a couple of years, speaking of tasty guitar, used to be my girl. If you listen to that record, you know, that guitar is just so sweet on that record. Another number one R&B record, another top five Hot 100 record. The hits just keep coming for the OJs. Used to be my girl was a fluker. Nobody knew that song was going to be what it was. The guitar lick, the shooters, the shoot, shoot, shoot. Because all of that was ideas that we were reaching back. You know, catching the flamingos, right. catching right. the coastal, right. shoot, 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 right. all of that. We were reaching back to our roots and catching those guys and putting them on record. And it just happened to catch on. Dick Clark really loved that record. He yeah. loved, he thought he was- That's a great record. He, he was a funny man about that record. <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting. You know, we, we've actually been talking here, you know, doing a little homework inside Atlantic, and we're talking about the 50s and Dick Clark and, and Philadelphia, and it's crazy how much amazing music came out of that city and how he was in the middle of all of it and somehow yeah. came out unscathed with the payola scandals and all, and all that stuff. Good <laughs> yeah. for him. Good yeah. for him. He, he, he survived it all. You know, you, you have survivors. <laughs> Was there ever any competition between the OJs and any of the other Philly International acts? It was always competition, man. They, you know, people would like to think that this this is not this is about who uh, we're friends, and you know, and you did a great record, and you did a great show, and I'm for you to do it. But this is a very competitive business, right? I don't care who you are, pop. R&B, gospel, you know, you're trying to be number one, too. Sure. So that means competition. Right. Well, since Kenny and Leon were writing, you know, the majority of the OJ stuff, but they were also writing for Billy Paul, and they were also writing for Teddy Pendergrass, um, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Pete, do you think that Tom Bell didn't want that kind of success? Right. That Gambling Up was having? Do you think that Bobby Eli didn't want it. Well, they did all did, they all did just fine. Anyway. <laughs> you know, that's, what that's what I'm saying. <laughs> because I heard an interview that you did where you said, "Why are you giving Teddy Pendergrass all the sexy stuff?" Yeah, that's right. I did it. I admit it, and I mean it now. <laughs> because he was getting, you know, the close the door. Yeah. The if you don't know me by now, yep. Yep. That they were getting all of these records, and we were stuck doing the I love music, <laughs> love train, and I went to Kenny and said, "Come on, man, I could sing those things because we had to let me make love to you, right. the, you're my sunshine." Sure, but they weren't getting that kind of exposure. Right, we were only getting the other stuff. So, I, yeah, I felt some kind of way, Pete. Well, the next record that was a hit was a love song, Forever Mine. Yeah. When I was a kid and I was just discovering the radio, I remember hearing that song all the time. Forever And then you guys, several years later in, into the late 80s, you had another number one record with, with Kenny and, and Leon called Loving You. Loving you has made my life much sweeter, baby. Baby, since I've got you. You know, just the run with Kenny, Leon, and the OJs is so iconic, you know, starting in the late 60s, early 70s, and going almost all the way through the 80s. You know, you have two full decades of smash after smash with the OJs and Kenny and Leon. 
uh, incredible. It was incredible. And uh, the marriage was something of, I'd say, made, use that old adage, the marriage with Gamelin Huff and the OJs would seem like it was made in heaven. Mm. And uh, we were able to uh, do a lot of things, a lot of things. But you wonder why things stop, why there's no continuum. You know what I'm saying? Because like I say, egos and personalities get involved and that has a negative effect on what the product is. Right, right. Are you, are you still in touch with those guys? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm still, how can I get away from it? There's no way. <laughs> we, we, uh, ho- we hosted them for this program a couple of years ago and they were the most kind-hearted gentlemen that I you know, maybe have ever met. Only when you're not on the contract. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we talk about the OJs as a family with, you know, you and Walter still going strong today. You and Kenny and Leon and, and the players all becoming part of a family. We'd be remiss not to speak about your actual family, about your sons, Gerald and Sean, who famously started their own group using the family name. So when do you well, get... No, no, let's get this straight. Okay, see, I'm not right now, all the time. You know, me looking ahead of my career, I wanted to always have a blues band. And so I was telling my kid, Gerald, I'm going to start my own band and I'm going to call them Levert. And I'm just going to use my last name and that's going to be their name. He told my name... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he said, it's my name too, Pop. Absolutely. You got the argument all the way. So he he stole my name. Then I did this record called I'm Still. I wrote it. I was going to, it was going to be the first record I do for my group. He stole the song. (laughs) And the rest is history. Unbelievable. He's a thief. He's my kid. <laughs> what do you remember about hearing your boys sing together for the first time? Oh, man. Incredible. You know, do you know how long I ran around with their tapes under my arm, playing them for different companies? Uh-huh. And they're saying to me, well, he sounds so much like you. What are we going to do with him? Put him out. Put it on the radio. And I ran around for two years like that. And finally, when Sylvia Rome uh-huh. and Hank Caldwell uh-huh. finally gave me a deal, and I was able to hear that stuff on the radio. Amazing. That label. And Harry Coombs. Right. And Harry Coombs. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that label, where, what you're talking about is Electro, which is now part of the Atlantic Records family. So it's all, yeah. you know, it's all yeah. it's all love. It's yeah. all part of the same Yeah, same absolutely. So I still talk to Sylvia. Yep. You know, she's a big mogul now. She is. And, <laughs> right. So so all of these people I came up with, you know what I'm saying? Did we saw them come go from secretaries and yep. and different places yep. to and run become, the business, sure. Yes. And this is what those records have done for me. Now when you talk about songs like Forever Mine and Loving You that became hits, I think this is what Bruno Mars and Anderson Pac has been able to take and twist it a little uh-huh. and become 
and become silk sonic. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 100%. I mean, you talk about the success that you and your group had. Your son's success rivaled the success of the OJs. 18 top 40 R&B hits for Levert. You know, multiple gold and platinum albums. You actually recorded an album with your son, Gerald, in the mid-90s called Father and Son. What was that like? Yeah, it was tremendous, man. I bet some of my best work. Performing and singing with him was a, a blessing to me. I There's nothing else that can top that. And it was successful. That's what was so great about it, because we did a cover of uh, Wind Beneath My Wings, right. which, which I, I think was incredible. It, they just didn't play it that much on the radio, but the effect that it had on the people, the culture. Totally. I, Great, yeah. Well, there's an amazing performance of you and Gerald singing Wind Beneath My Wings live at the Essence 25th Anniversary Award Show in, in 1995 that is on YouTube, and it's beautiful. I yeah. mean, you think about the words, the lyrics of that song, and the fact that you were able to sing that with your son, and, you know, the world still gets to hear that song whenever it wants to. It's such a beautiful song, beautiful recording and beautiful message. Did you ever know that you're my hero? You're everything I would like to be. I could fly higher than an eagle. Hey, hey, hey. You are the wind beneath my wings. Yeah. We actually didn't know the impact it would have after we did it for the essence and the impact. We saw the impact that it was having on the audience. It was incredible, man. It was quite the experience. Mm. And and you and Gerald actually co-authored a book together called I Got Your Back, which is, you know, um, a song that you guys recorded together. Yeah, that was part of the album uh, of Father and Son. Mm-hmm. But the book itself, you know, we didn't actually go in deep on the book. We And this was premeditated between me and him. We said, we're not going to tell them much because we're going to hold some things back. Mm. We felt like some things should stay uh, in the family. Private, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I I love the title of the book, I Got Your Back, A Father and Son Keep It Real About Love, Fatherhood, Family, and Friendship. That says it all. We tried to be truthful, but we held back. Mm. (laughs) Well, speaking of the OJs, one thing that we haven't talked about is some of the accolades that the band has received you know, famously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2005, BT Lifetime Achievement Award in 2009, the Soul Train Awards, Quincy Jones Award for Career Achievement in 2002, the NAACP Image Award in 1992, two-time Grammy Hall of Fame inductees for Love Train and, and for the Love of Money, 10 platinum or gold albums, five gold singles, four Grammy nominations, four AMA nominations, American Music Awards. When you look back on all that, do you feel like you've accomplished what you set out to do or is there still more to come? You know, to be honest with you, Pete, I think that there could have been more accomplished. You know what I'm saying? 
this job is about hard work and dedication. And if you want it all, then you do like Michael Jackson or you do like the Beatles. You get it all. You know what I'm saying? Or I don't think the OJs ever put it in a like that enough to get it all. Mm. He had the talent to get it all, but being committed to it is another thing. Right. And do you, obviously, the last couple of years, everyone's had to stay at home, but do you look forward to going on the road again? Are the OJs going to tour again? Oh, absolutely. We're going to start actually in June. We do a date in the casino in Philadelphia, and then we go and play with the Columbus, Ohio Symphony Orchestra. And then we go to Baltimore, and we do a date with the Children's Hospital. I think it's a great way to start. So we start rehearsals sometime in May. We're trying to put together a show. Of course, Pete, there won't be all of that fancy dancing going on. <laughs> you know, so, so, well, you've so, got you've got a big birthday this year, Eddie. Yeah, so we're gonna sing our butts off, and uh, we're gonna in the meantime we're gonna celebrate my 80th birthday. Well, and you can leave the dancing to other people. That's okay. I, that's you. You hit it dead on the head, Pete. You mentioned some of the things that, you know, other artists did to, you know, really get it all. But the OJs, some people may not remember in the early 2000s, you actually co-starred in a movie uh, called The Fighting Temptations. What do you remember about acting? Oh, man, that's a horse of a different color. You have to lose yourself in order to be an actor. You have to become someone totally a completely different person than you, and you have to be committed to it. That's why a lot of those actors go crazy. Because <laughs> yeah, they, they, they lose their sense of self. Right? Yeah, they yeah. never can come back. Right. They never can get out of that character. Did you enjoy so, it? I loved it. I wanted to do more because I wanted to be an idiot and change myself like that on a regular <laughs> Well, you and the guys played three barbers uh, with incredible vocal harmony who joined the local church choir in the movie The Fighting Temptations. And I found it very interesting that next year will be the 20th anniversary of the movie. There was a a very promising young woman who starred in that movie, a singer in her own right. Do you remember Beyonce? Yes, beautiful, (laughs) beautiful girl. And was always learning, always learning. She was always, show me this step. Show me how you do this. Don't show me why you do this. She was prying and probing and trying to learn from all the She probably picked up a thing or two from you guys. Yeah, she did. (laughs) She did. When we do that finally finale scene, when I run out on the stage, I had to teach her a little step that we did, and uh, she wanted to be able to do it with us. That's amazing. Yeah. See, always learning. Yeah, 100%. Do you guys still enjoy recording? I know you recorded your most recent album, The Last Word, was released by our friend Steve Greenberg's label, S-Curve, and you guys got to work with some good friends of ours, Sam Hollander and and Mike Mangini. Do you still enjoy recording as much as you used to? Yeah. See, what has happened to it is now it became so mechanical that they do line for line or they you don't get a chance to learn the song anymore. It's more like assembly line. You know what I'm saying? Do your part. Mm. Now come back maybe two days later, do this part. 
and we'll put them together and it becomes a record. Right. Like where I'm used to learning the song, knowing the song, living the song, and then delivering the song. Mm-hmm. You know, you never get a chance to deliver the song. Right. You're only living the moment. Got it. So speaking of the songs, you're looking back on, like we said, coming up on 65 years of OJ's music, which is incredible. Do you have any specific song that is most meaningful to you, whether it's an OJ song, whether it's a Levert song, any song that feels today, you know, 65 years later that, yeah, I'm really, really super proud of this one? Backstabbers, man. That was the first one. Backstabbers. That's it. It's my favorite song. It's the epitome of production, lyrics, a meaningful song, a worldly song, a soulful song, something that I did and I lived the song. Mm. And now the song lives on. Right. Whose idea was the what they do? Kenny Gamble. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Gamble. Very creative guy. You know, and if you, along with your creativity and his creativity, you know, we were able to do some great things. Mm. Well, the music lives on. It speaks for itself. I had such a good time preparing for our conversation today by going back and listening to your catalog And it's brilliant. You know, I would highly, highly recommend to anyone who hasn't, you know, taken out their their OJ's records or or gone on to their, um, you know, digital service platform of choice and and listen. These records really stand the test of time. Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, Eddie, you know, from, from a lifetime of recording? Just remember, nothing comes easy. It's all hard. And it's all heart and heart. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And it's from within out. But it's worth it, right? Absolutely. All the misery, all the pain, all the uncashed checks. Mm. To be able to be sitting here talking to you today is an honor and a privilege. And thank you for all the music and, and really appreciate it. Eddie LaVert, thank you. Um, my pleasure, Pete. People all over the world, everybody, join me, join. Start a love tree, love tree. People all over the world, join in, love tree. Start a love tree, love tree. The next stop that we make will be love. Tell all the folks in Russia and China too. A huge thanks to Eddie Levert for joining us on today's episode. You can keep up with the OJs at their website, MightyOJs.com, and also at Eddie's personal website, EddieWLevert.com. Make sure to check out our episode featuring Hall of Fame songwriters Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff for a deeper dive into the hits of the OJs and for more on the inner workings of the sound of Philadelphia. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenow, Catherine Hoppy, 
Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.